Let's ask God to bless us as we worship him in the midst of his word. Dear Heavenly Father, what a sweet moment for us to join with a family in asking you, Lord, to bless and prosper Olivia Whitaker. God, I'm excited to think about the years ahead and all the wonderful things you might do in and through her. And of course, God, the very reason why we come to you at times such as these is because we believe that you are a sovereign God that you can do anything that you will. All that pleases you, God, you can accomplish. And so, God, we who are small call out to you who is big, we who are weak to your strength, we who are located here to your omnipresence, we who know so little, and even what we know we often misunderstand and misinterpret, we lean into your omniscience. Father, you are powerful and we are feeble. And so, God, we ask you to do the miraculous, not only in Olivia's life, but in all of our lives, in the life of our church. We ask you, Lord, to do the heavy lifting. Father, fill us with your spirit that we might, do, we might be faithful servants. But Father, we are mindful in this moment as we gather that the church is this mingling of miraculous divine power and ordinary human faithfulness. We need you, Lord. And so we look away from our own inner resources, from budgets, we look away from what we can do by sheer dint of hard work, and we ask you, Lord, to provide the miraculous as we go forward faithfully in obedience to your commands. Provide the miracle, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we have taken a few weeks off from the Gospel of John. And uh, we come right back to where we left off. It's been about three weeks now that we have been other places in, our, in the Bible, in the Word of God. But this morning we return to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, in the 10th chapter of his gospel account, John paints for us a picture of Jesus as sovereign. That word sovereign is not a word I find that we use very much in common parlance. You know, we just don't very often throughout the week, sovereign is not a word that finds its way out of my mouth for any reason, unless I'm talking about Queen Elizabeth II. (laughs) I don't know. She's the sovereign. I've seen that on coins and things. But we don't ever use this word sovereign. So what do I mean by that? It's one of those Christian-y kind of words that we use, but maybe don't always understand. What does it mean to be sovereign? Well, when I describe Jesus, or God more broadly, as sovereign, I mean two things simultaneously. One, Jesus exists in perfect freedom exercising control and dominion over all things. And two, he himself is controlled by nothing. He controls all things, and he is controlled by nothing. He has both the right and the means to do whatever he wills according to his own good pleasure, and nobody and nothing can limit, thwart, or even delay the doing of his will. By describing Jesus as sovereign, we are saying he is supreme in power and authority. There are no limiting factors to his rule and agency. This is what it means to describe Jesus as sovereign. 
And if that was all we knew about Jesus, that would be a perfectly horrifying description, would it not? Imagine being able to describe any human being that you know with that description. Completely unlimited in power and authority. No limiting factors on their ability to do anything. Whatever they want to do, they do. And nobody can stop them, slow them down, or anything. That's a perfectly horrifying description of a human being, but it's an absolutely wonderful description of Jesus as Lord. Throughout our study of this gospel, John has made it abundantly clear that Jesus is God. He pre-existed creation, and in fact, all that is was made through him. He is equal in divine essence and power with the Father and the Holy Spirit. His appearance among us was not the birth of a new person, but a coming into the world of an infinitely old person. And when when that infinitely old, divine person speaks to us through his word, the very word that, as John puts it, put on flesh and dwelt among us, this is what he says about himself. In Psalm 135, he says, "'Whatever I please, I do, in heaven and on earth.'" in the seas and all deeps. In Ephesians 1, it says this, I work all things according to the counsel of my will. In Isaiah 46, he says, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. With so much uncertainty in the world all around us, this truth is something we need to center our hearts and minds around. God is in control. He is sovereign. And so in John 10, I see a few different things that I want to draw your attention to. We won't read the entire chapter in a word-by-word kind of way, but we've already spent one week in John chapter 10, and so we're just going to kind of bounce around showing those places where Jesus' sovereignty is highlighted. And the first thing I want you to see about Jesus in John chapter 10, especially as it relates to us as creatures, created beings, human beings in a fallen world marred by the curse of sin, is that Jesus is sovereign over salvation. By saying that Jesus is sovereign over salvation, we mean both that he has set the terms of salvation and also that salvation cannot be gained by any other way. He's sovereignly in control over salvation. In verse 7, it says this, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I'm the door. And then in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in in and out and find pasture. So he is the door. But then very quickly, we we are told in verse 10 that he is sovereign over this. In other words, he has set the terms of salvation. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So he's the door, and if you try to get into salvation by any other means, that is thievery and robbery. He is sovereign. 
And I have a question for you. Why did you recognize the voice of Jesus when he called you? Jesus says in his word that his sheep know, him, know his voice and they follow him. In John chapter 10, he makes this statement very clear. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. So why did you recognize the voice of Jesus was when he called you? It's because you were his sheep. It's not the other way around. It's because God in Jesus is sovereign even over your response to him. That you were able to recognize and respond to the call of Jesus the way you did is owing to his sovereign choice of you. That he gave you the ability and the capacity to respond the way that you did. Being one of Christ's sheep enables you to recognize your shepherd and respond to his call. Responding to his call does not make you one of his sheep. If you hear and recognize his voice, it is because you already are. You come to the Son because the Father gives you to the Son. Consider this verse out of John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That is the starting thing, startling thing about this chapter. By highlighting the perfect sovereignty of God as the decisive agent who saves fallen man, it reveals to us, by contrast, the arrogant presumption of human thinking that the final determination of our life lies in our own power and wisdom. In John 10, 24, unbelievers were demanding of Jesus that he tell them plainly who he is. And then in verse 25, Jesus answers them by saying that he had already told them plainly enough. So why hadn't they believed? Listen to Jesus' answer in verse 26. You do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. We have to make sure that we get the order right here. He doesn't say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. All human pretense and arrogance is destroyed by the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God to choose his sheep before they believe according to his own grace and wisdom. Something else to note here about Jesus and his sovereignty. He is sovereign over salvation. He is also sovereign in his keeping power. I am personally persuaded that the plain teaching of the Bible is that a true saving faith in Jesus will never be lost or forfeited or destroyed. Salvation is a work of God's sovereign grace. And when Jesus says in verses 27 through 29, he says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I think there are other passages that reinforce this idea 
that Jesus is sovereign in his keeping power, that all those who have truly put their trust in Jesus for salvation cannot then lose that or destroy it or forfeit it. Consider this in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to, the, to completion at the day of Christ. He will bring it to completion. He is the one who began it, and he is the one who sees it through. Or in Hebrews, where Jesus is described as both the author and the perfecter of our faith. Or what about in Jude 1:24 through 25, when it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So yes, I think that in this chapter when Jesus says that all those who the Father has given me, no one will snatch them out of my hand, he is proclaiming his sovereignty in keeping power that he is the decisive agent who first called you and gave you the capacity to recognize his voice. And he is the sovereign God who now keeps you and maintains you in his fold. Before we move on, I want to add something because I fear that some people might stumble over the truth that Jesus is sovereign in his keeping power. Some might feel, for example, that this will lead to passivity in the Christian life. They might say, well, if Jesus is the one who calls and Jesus is the one who keeps, maybe I don't have a place as an evangelist. There's nothing for me to do. And I would again remind you that the church is this strange mingling of miraculous divine power and ordinary human faithfulness. God does almost nothing except by delegation. Almost nothing. Even in the most important things, consider when he gave us his word. How did he do that? Well, he accomplished that through the inspired writings of human beings, creatures. And when he, the work of evangelism, how important and central is that to God's heart? But we find Jesus saying to his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out more workers into the fields. The church is God's plan A for all of his work, and there is no plan B. We are not called to be passive, but to strive. Consider two passages with me that might help provide a needed corrective if anyone is tempted to think in this way about their own souls. That because I have made a decision for Christ, I need not strive. Or I need not be concerned about sin in my own life. Consider 1 Peter 1, 3-9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here describing the sovereign keeping power of God, it says to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So there we see both a description of Jesus' sovereign and his keeping power, but it also talks about our response. Consider this also in Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Well, that doesn't sound like keeping power. That talks about falling away from the living God. Then it says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This passage might be pointed at by somebody to say, well, no, he's not sovereign in his keeping power. You have the ability to say no and opt out. Let me explain. If verse 12 of Hebrews 3 raises the questions in our mind that we might lose our salvation, then verse 14 explains that this falling away from God does not mean that a true saving faith has been lost, but that the substance of that person's faith has been revealed as counterfeit. For we have come to share in Christ, it says, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The holding firm to the end is what authenticates a true saving faith from someone who merely had the appearance of faith. Those who persevere have faith in Jesus, and those who do not never did. This is what he's saying in this passage. In 1 John 2.19, it says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I think this is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And right there, between verse 12's concerns that some might fall away because of evil, unbelieving hearts, and verse 14, here I'm talking about Hebrews 3, In verse 14, where it speaks of holding our original confidence in Christ to the end, is verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How important is it that Christians live in community? That we gather, that we be together, that we have more than superficial access to one another's lives. The community of the church is one of the graces of God given to us to keep our hearts warm in these cold days. We need one another. I need you to know the reality of my struggles, to have more than superficial access to my life, because let none of us be deceived that we are strong enough to stay warm on our own. We do need body heat. We need one another. We need the church especially in the midst of cold days full of sin. And so right there between the warning that some might fall away and the, the exhortation in verse 14, we find, we find the writer of Hebrews exhorting us to not forsake the gathering and to exhort one another. 
And so again, sign up for a, that one of those book club, not a book clubs groups. Uh, get together with fellow believers. Make commitments among yourselves, brothers and sisters, to get together for prayer, for Bible study, for accountability. This can happen through a program at the church or it can happen perfectly organically. But one thing is for sure, and I need to tell you this, is that you as a believer need this in your life. You cannot do the Lone Ranger Christian thing and expect to thrive and stay on fire for Jesus. We need one another. We are saved because of what Christ did, not through any striving on our part. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be justified by faith apart from works. However, the idea that these passages are ramming home is not that a Christian can lose their salvation, but that the evidence of a true saving faith is that we strive. A Christian is somebody who kicks and swims and fights. In Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus made a surprising, provocative statement about those who persevere to the end and inherit eternal life, saying, The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. This is a call to the very opposite of passivity. In other words, the evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not a passive attitude towards sin in their own lives or the Great Commission cause, but rather a passionate striving, a violent moving against our own sinful inclinations. Paul spoke in precisely this way about the Christian life. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air. God does not will for you, his people, to run aimlessly or to fight like people beating the air. But as we uh, focus this morning on the perfect sovereignty of God, thinking deeply about His activity, His agency, His movement in the world, I don't want us to then be prompted by those thoughts to sit down. <laughs> we don't want to run aimlessly, but we shouldn't be drawn into a life of complacency and not running. We don't want to fight like somebody beating the air. We want our punches to land. This is what we're called to be as Christians. And I think in some way, running with purpose, fighting in a way that's not just flailing in the air, is going to be tied to an understanding of Jesus as perfectly sovereign. I really do. What is the opposite of life marked by aimless flailing? It's a life marked by intentional striving. Holiness and God's power unto godliness in a Christian life is not that we are perfect, but that we are actively, intentionally striving against the strong downward pull of these days. I've told you this story before on another Sunday morning. I'll be very brief, but in Florida where I live, there was a famous story about a couple that went out into the Gulf of Mexico. Remember this story? She, she dove off the boat to go swimming got caught in a horrible current, a very strong current. Her husband was busy with something on the boat. She looked up, he looked up because he heard her calling. 
and he was surprised at how far she was from the boat. And he thought, something's wrong. And not thinking at all, instead of powering up the boat and going to her, he dove into the water and swam to her. And they together, treading water, watched the boat moving away from them. Or perhaps they were moving away from the boat. I don't know which was true. He was a very strong swimmer, a much stronger swimmer than she was. And so he said, honey, you just need to tread water as long as you can. I'm going to catch that boat. And he took off swimming. And he swam for hours beyond the point of exhaustion. But amazingly, he finally did catch that boat. And he raced into land. He got, raised the alarm. They sent out the Coast Guard and all these boats. And the next day, they found her still treading water. But here's the lesson spiritually. His, their, their life depended on his striving. If, if he had just treaded water, they didn't hold their place. They got swept away. He had to strive. He had to swim and kick and fight. And this is what is in evidence in all people who have truly had a saving encounter with Christ. The Holy Spirit that fills us doesn't call us to just rest on our laurels, but to strive. There is a ruinous current flowing past your souls, and it is determined to drag you out and away to your death and destruction. And a Christian in this fallen world is somebody who swims, who strives, who kicks, who fights against that current. And to stop is not to hold our place, but to drift away. And I think that's what these verses are calling us to. As we set our minds on the perfect sovereignty of God, we should be stirred up with a desire to strive. And this brings me to my next point that we find here in John chapter 10. Jesus is sovereign over the spread of his kingdom. In verse 16, we read this in John chapter 10. And I, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. This voice has come to serve in my mind. I remember first encountering this verse in a, in a thoughtful way. I think I'd encountered it as a kid and other things like that, but really in a way that had a, a deep impact on me when I was pastoring in Florida. I don't remember the day, I don't remember the exact context, but I remember bumping up against this verse and it, 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 it shook me. Not in a bad way, it filled me with hope. And it has come to serve in my mind as the basis for hopeful evangelism. Because Jesus here is he's describing Gentile believers. He's talking to Jewish folks about the fact that he has other sheep, that he's going to bring into the fold people from other places. But he's speaking about them as though they were already his when they don't yet even know the name of Jesus probably. But they're his as surely as if they were already in his pocket, as it were. He already has ownership over them. He's already saying, I have them. They're mine. And so this has come to serve in my mind as just this basis for hopeful evangelism. Do you believe that right now in a rustic county there are Christians who do not yet call themselves Christians, who've not yet really fully grasped the gospel truth that Jesus died for them. 
I believe that's what Jesus is saying right here. I have other sheep, and I'm going to bring them. They will listen to my voice, he says. Not they have listened, but they will. Future tense. Are you full, let me ask this, are you full of hopeful expectation when you think of what may come of our evangelism efforts here? Or do you despair that any breakthrough could possibly ever come? When you support a missionary effort, or do the brave thing of being a missionary yourself, maybe to somebody in your family, your workplace, your neighborhood, are you filled with a Christmas Eve anticipation to see the recipient of your gift open God in the joyous space of their heart? Or do you rather suspect nothing will come of it if I try? I think we need a biblical basis for hope in our evangelism and missions efforts. And I'm excited to share this verse with you because the idea that Jesus is sovereign over the spread of his kingdom has encouraged me. Let's start with these words. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Christ has people in the world besides those already converted, other people besides us. There will always be people who argue that the doctrine of God's sovereignty over the will of man makes local evangelism and foreign missions unnecessary. If God chooses his sheep before they believe, why evangelize the lost here in Aristic County? But the fact is, the sovereignty of God over the wills of men doesn't make evangelism unnecessary, it makes it hopeful. Listen to what our God told his servant Paul in Acts 18, 9 through 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent. How many of you evangelists need to hear those words from God? Do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man shall attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. God is saying to Paul, it's really, you need to speak and not be afraid because I have many people in this city. This is the same tone as what Jesus is saying by saying, I have many sheep. I have many people in this city. You need to go gather them in. Don't be afraid. Another encouragement in John 10, 16 that our evangelism will not be in vain is that the Lord himself has promised to bring his lost sheep home. He promises to do it. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice. He brings them. They will hear his voice. But how? How today will they hear his voice when Jesus is not physically here? The answer is through your speaking. As the Father sent the Son to seek and to save the lost, so the Son sends his people. The key verse is found in Jesus' prayer in John 17, 20. I do not pray for these, meaning his disciples, only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Through their word. This is the text that everyone has to deal with who would say, well, if Christ calls his own sheep, and if Christ gathers the children of God, and if the sheep and the children are already chosen, then we don't need to evangelize. 
that response, again, is just pure human arrogance. It's presumption. It's not logical, and it's not biblical. The simple fact is, Jesus uses us to call his sheep and gather God's children. Just as Jesus called his sheep with his own lips in Palestine, so he still calls them today with our lips. In the gospel, they hear his voice, and in the gospel, they hear his voice and follow him. He does it, but he does it through the church. In 1 John 4, 6, it says this, We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Uh, this is the wonder of the gospel. When it is spoken truthfully in the power of the Spirit, it is not merely the word of man. It is the word of God. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it says this, And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. How does faith come? According to Romans 10, by hearing the word of God. In other words, even today, it is just as true as it was in Jesus' day. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It is Christ who calls in the gospel. Christ gathers. We are only the ambassadors speaking in his stead. So we can take heart. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son of God, and he declares, I must bring in my other sheep. He will do it through us, his church. And I suppose if we declined to participate, we would fade to irrelevance and he would raise up another church. In the middle of verse 16, we, won, we find one final word that expresses Jesus' sovereignty over the spread of his kingdom, and which is designed to inspire confidence in all us human evangelists. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. None of Christ's sheep finally reject his word. He allows some of his sheep to resist the word for a long time, but never do they reject it finally. And I want to conclude this morning with just a thought about the sovereignty of Christ. Uh, sometimes when I am, am talking with little kids, I will ask them some question like, if you had unlimited amounts of money, what would you buy? What would you do if you had all the money in the world? Little kids are funny. They've got funny ideas. Uh, I asked uh, my son Charlie recently what he would do if he, had, if he was very, very, very rich. No limit. Guess what he would do? He would get a dinosaur, of course, right? It's not possible. It doesn't matter. I guess he just thinks if you had enough money, you could do anything. You'd be sovereign, perhaps. I don't know. But he just thought that's what he'd do. He'd get a dinosaur, and he had lots of plans about all the things he would do with his dinosaur. Usually, if you ask a kid what he would do if he had all the, or he or she, if they had all the money in the world, they would talk about the things they would get. So when we talk about Jesus as sovereign, it just makes my heart uh, burn with love for Jesus, with what he did with all that sovereignty. 
Have you ever thought about it that way? He exists in perfect freedom. There is no limiting factor on what he can do. Anything he wills, he can accomplish. Not only that, but because he's God, he's perfectly content. There's nothing he needs. But what did he do with all that sovereignty? Verses 17 through 18 are two of the most explicit statements about Jesus' sovereignty in John chapter 10. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. What did Jesus do in his perfect freedom and sovereignty? He went to the cross for you. And in Christ, we have been given tremendous riches and power and freedom. We're not quite sovereign in the way God is, but we are free of much that enslaves the rest of the world. We have much more access to power and divine abundance than those who do not know God. We are not sovereign, but we are elevated. And really, the question before me as a Jesus follower is what will we do with the vast abundance of what God has laid at our disposal? I think to be a follower of Jesus is to share his nature, his self-sacrificing, other-loving nature. Because Jesus is sovereign, our hope is indestructible. Because Jesus is sovereign, our labor is not in vain. Because Jesus is sovereign, our treasure is laid up where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Because Jesus is sovereign, we trust and we strive. Because Jesus is sovereign, these present sufferings are but a light momentary affliction preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. And because Jesus is sovereign, we have been given the capacity to share in his nature by living our lives as a living sacrifice, seeking our joy and the joy of others. I find it very helpful to meditate on the perfect sovereignty of Jesus because at times in 2020, we feel all like we're on a roller coaster ride. (laughs) It's up and down. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to love to go to county fairs. And of course, my favorite thing about the county fairs were the ride. And at some point, you strap yourself into the ride and you look over and you see the person who built the ride. And you're like, I don't know about this. (laughs) And the ride uh, at a county fair is designed to make you feel fear, right? Uh, To make you feel out of control. And when you're on the ride, as it's going up, 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 you know it's about to plummet, and it's going to twist and turn, and your stomach's going to fly up into your esophagus and all this stuff, and it's scary. And in some ways, that's what life feels like sometimes. And so it's very important for the Christian to just uh, focus your mind on the sovereignty of Jesus, that things are not out of control, That even when things seem topsy-turvy and impossible, scary maybe, that, that God is sovereignly orchestrating all things and he is in control of them all.
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, here in John 10, uh, you have focused in your word on the sovereignty of Jesus as it relates to salvation and the Great Commission cause. We know elsewhere in the Bible that there are clear, unambiguous statements, God, that you are sovereign over the created order. You're sovereign over the raising and pulling down of strongholds, kings, kingdoms, countries. Father, you are Lord even over your enemies. Satan is a lion, but he's a lion on a leash. He is even subject to your control. Father, all things are under your dominion. And from our perspective, Lord, it is sometimes hard to see in a way, Lord, that just makes us feel like we're out of control. And so, Father, in John 10, I thank you for the gift of steadying our hearts with this clear vision of the sovereignty of Jesus. That he is Lord. He's sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign in his keeping power. He's sovereign over the spread of his kingdom. He's sovereign over suffering. He is sovereign, Lord, and that is married up with his wonderful character. God, if all that we knew about you was that you were all-powerful, we would tremble in fear. But because we also know that you are the very personification of love, that you are grace and mercy, that you are a God who pardons the wrongdoer, that is patient and long-suffering. You are the God who calls us to come before you like children to the knee of their father, calling out, Abba, Father. And so, Father, we trust you. We love you. We revel in your, in your omnipotent sovereignty. Father, we delight ourselves in you. Help us go out from here this week with our hearts steadied, with a vision of your perfect sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen.